Swivel. From Swivel Media and the Product Bus, this is The Bootstrap. I'm Scotty Allen. The Bootstrap is your source of news and resources all about building startups from scratch. This week, I'm joined by Steve Grace from The Nudge Group to discuss talent acquisition for startups. But first, let's take a look at some things you should know. Here's the startup rundown for Thursday, the 22nd of February. Australia's most talked about startup, Canva, has fallen under scrutiny for the alleged conduct of its CFO and his conveniently timed resignation. CFO Damien Singh's resignation was announced last Thursday as the Aussie unicorn prepares to launch its IPO. This resignation comes as allegations of Singh's misconduct have been brought to public attention after being posted on a professional forum in January and early February of this year. The posts have since been removed and a company spokesperson has confirmed that Singh is under an investigation for inappropriate behavior. According to the AFR, Singh was beginning to transition out of his position, but this process was accelerated after the allegations emerged. Partner at Blackbird Ventures Rick Baker has stated that he's confident that Singh's departure will not cause significant issues, but has declined to comment on the alleged misconduct. Watch this space. Byron Bay Compost Technology startup Subpod has fallen on hard times, announcing that the company will be placed into liquidation. According to Business News Australia, co-founder and CEO Sadi Allen, no relation to yours truly, is still confident that the once promising company will find a buyer. The company was launched in 2018 and has developed a composting system designed for urban usage that is described as an in-ground compost bin, worm farm, and self-fertilizing garden bed. This announcement comes as a shock to some as the company has made over 65,000 sales in 20 countries, with sales experiencing a boom at the end of the pandemic. Allen has stated that it was tough trading conditions that ultimately brought about the decision. Maybe the worms wanted to be paid a fair wage? We reached out to the worms representatives for comment and didn't hear back in time for publication. More bad news for the tech startup space, as the comparison platform Finder has just laid off 60 employees in its fourth round of redundancies since April of 2023. According to Smart Company, the staff were made aware of the decision via a 10-minute call on Wednesday morning in which they were told that the startup could not afford to sustain the current crew while still trying to grow the business. These redundancies affecting the editorial and publishing teams brings the grand total to around 175 laid-off employees in the last year. Finder has had a rough go of late, facing the downturn in crypto in late 2021 and two lawsuits from ASIC in 2022 as a subsidy of the business failed to register for an Australian financial services license. Whoops. According to employees, the morale of the remaining staff has been dreadful. The race is on to produce Australia's first commercial quantum computer, and an unlikely startup has taken the lead. According to the Australian Financial Review, Dirac founder Professor Andrew Zhirac has stated that the startup is 100% confident that it will be rolling out a commercially viable quantum computer by 2028, five years before the estimated completion of government-backed silicon quantum computing's machine in 2033. SQC has reportedly missed several of its deadlines, despite being the more established and well-known contender, whereas Dirac has pledged that it will beat its deadline for commercial availability of June 30th, 2028. Both startups are aiming at the release of a simple quantum computing system, with the goal of universal quantum computers still a long way off. 
quantum computers sound great, but the main thing I still want to know is where is my jetpack? And finally, just when you thought there was already a dating app for every interest, there's now an app specifically for people with a credit fetish. Good credit, that is, because Scora, a dating app from financial platform Neon Money Club, is only for people with a good to excellent credit score. If a good old soft credit check gets you hot and heavy, this is the app for you, because you have to agree to one to sign up, and only those with a minimum credit score of 675 will be allowed to set up accounts. Before you throw your rotten cash bonds, the Score app is only going to be available for 90 days, and it's really designed to help educate the public on the impact of finances on relationships, with those who don't get access being sent resources on how to improve their financial literacy, which I am sure is exactly what people who get rejected from a dating app want to read. And that's the Startup Roundup for this episode. We'll be back in a moment. Building the right team is an essential part of early stage startups. Finding a balance of skills, experience, and personalities can truly be a make or break factor. To discuss the best ways to approach talent acquisition when you're bootstrapping, I'm joined by Steve Grace, founder and CEO of The Nudge Group, a specialist recruitment company focusing on the startup space. Well, Steve, welcome to The Bootstrap. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Exciting to have you. So let's just get right to it. Why is talent acquisition a critical element of startup strategy? <laughs> so that's such an interesting question that I get asked a lot. Why is talent acquisition? I mean, just in that sentence alone, I guess, if you're going to build any kind of business, whether it be funded or bootstrapped, it doesn't matter. You're going to need people. And if you don't get the right people, you're not going to be able to build a successful business. As much as we would all love to just rely on code and tech and simple things like that, people are still the number one resource that you need. They're still the hardest thing to acquire, the hardest thing to retain. You don't create a strategy around it and you do it just off the bat. You can get yourself in all sorts of trouble, both financially and just also in terms of your culture and how the business ends up going. What are some of the common mistakes that you see people make in the early startup days when it comes to hiring? There's a lot. I mean, hiring too many people is, is, is a classic one and hiring them way, way too quickly, getting excited, letting their ego take control of their hiring is, is a huge problem. But I think the, the major mistake I get is people hiring someone in a very, very small business from a big global what was a startup, so a Facebook or a Salesforce or an Atlassian, and assuming that because that person is associated with a successful company, they're going to bring this wondrous magic to their startup, which they're not, of course, because they're working in a corporate. They actually don't know how to work at a startup. All the people that made that startup what it is today have long since moved on. And I think people just don't understand that. And I think that's probably the, the number one most common mistake. Yeah, I, I've definitely made that mistake in my first business where great people with a lot of willingness and interest, but the, it kind of was a novelty like, oh, yeah, I think it'd be really fun to get my hands back on the tools. But then they arrive and they're like, so where's the person that sits in my chair first so I don't have to sit in a cold chair? And you kind of like, where, you know, where do you go from, from there? <laughs> Did they really have those people? Do they have those people? <laughs> Look, it might be a slight exaggeration. But yeah, it's an example, right? I get that completely. And I think you can't replace day one startup experience. No. So in terms of what you would be recommending as the starting point, 
for getting a talent strategy together, particularly if we're talking bootstrapping founder, where obviously I, if I'm hiring right now, either it's based on the revenue that I am currently generating, or I'm going to go into my own pocket to hire. What are the, the, the advice that you would give to someone in that space? It's a little different with Bootstrap because you're going to grow at a much slower rate. I think you need someone who's going to be involved in your business perhaps a lot longer doing a multitude of roles as opposed to when potentially you might get funding and then you might be able to go and hire 10 people in a year, which you're probably not going to be able to do in Bootstrapping unless you have just an outrageous amount of success, which is you know, not out of the question. But I think, I think the number one thing people have got to remember is at the, in the very, very early years, culture is far more important than skill set. And uh, that always surprises people when I say that, but it, but it so is. I think they're going to be doing a multitude of things. They're going to be wearing a multitude of hats. Whatever you think you're going to hire them to do, I'm sure they'll do some of that, but they'll also be doing all the other things that you're not aware you're going to be doing or either of you are going to be doing yet. So getting someone who is going to add to your culture necessarily has to think the same, but is going to set the tone of the culture that you want that business to have is probably the most important thing that you need to consider. Heard the analogy of in the early stages, you need a, a Swiss Army knife, not a, a precision blade. Someone who gets the culture and is prepared to jump in and do multiple things rather than somebody who just knows one thing really well. It's 100%. And bootstrap companies, usually for quite some time, that's the case. And I think with each hire, it becomes less. So if you like, if you take, if you use your analogy, right, say you've got a Swiss Army knife that has 27 functions. When you hire your third hire, you might only be looking for 24 functions. When you hire your fifth hire, you might only be looking for 20 functions. You know, And when you get to maybe you know, hire number 15, you might be looking for that sharp, precision surgical knife. But then that obviously generates another problem with when you do start hiring those people. And this is something that people don't consider until that time. And they really need to consider this at the very, very beginning. There will come a time when the people that you hire at the beginning, who you love so dearly and feel that should be with you forever, will probably not fit your business. Some of them will definitely be able to transition and stay with you on the whole journey, but a large percentage of them will need to be moved on or they will actually hinder your business. And I think the earlier you understand that and the earlier you can provision for that, the better, so that it doesn't come as this huge shock where you've got people that are actually causing you problems, but you don't want to let them go because you have this huge sense of loyalty towards them. Mm. I've been in a newish organization and I arrived at a point where some of the day one employees were hitting that point and it was very painful. Yeah. They become a nuisance. nuisance. They really do. Well, I mean, it's, it's painful for the leader as well, like to, to, to come to terms with the fact that this person who was, you know, the, the place wouldn't exist without them, that now they're actually holding it back. It's a hard thing to kind of come to terms with if you're the person who brought them in. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really is. And I, and I think it's also that that person will sometimes use that exact line against them. You know, you wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for us able to get you through that. And, and they're right. But that doesn't mean that they have the right to you know stay in that business forever because they're the wrong people. So that's why I think it's really important that those conversations it's not just that the founder realizes this at the beginning, but also that the founder makes sure that the people joining realize this as well. Now, there's other things you can do with those people. You know, you can launch into a new country and then essentially you've got to start up again. You can create a new product line. Essentially, you've got to start up again. So you can repurpose them, but quite often you can't. So you need to also think about that with your business model. If there are ways you can repurpose them, 
fantastic. You could use their skills again. That's just the most awesome thing ever. But more often than not, a lot of them will have to be moved on. And, and that's that's probably one of the hardest parts of, of managing the talent of a, of a growing startup, particularly in a bootstrap business where the growth is is much more purposeful and, and, and a lot slower often than, than in a, a venture-based mm. company. So your own business background is bootstrapped businesses. So what, what has that journey been like for you? Like where, where have you succeeded? <laughs> where have you done things that you wouldn't do again? <laughs> so many places are things I wouldn't do again. Look, I mean, I've always built services businesses. Services businesses typically will not get venture-backed funding. They're difficult to scale. They're not they're not product-based and so forth. So most services companies will be bootstrapped. It's unusual to have them venture-backed. But I think the the most common mistake I've made is probably just hiring too quickly. You know, to some degree in a service-based business, you're very constrained by the human capital to get the job done because it's not automated. And I think what you can do in a service-based business is you can automate a lot of those things and hire less people. And I think that the the general nature of of service-based founders is we'll just get more people, right? Because that's kind of how they see the world. And I think learning that that's actually not the case is going, okay, well, what could we do more efficiently so that I could do more with my current people and that will make their lives easier and enable them to achieve more that will probably cost a lot less, a lot less to get a piece of software than another human being. Um, And certainly a lot less stress usually. (laughs) Yeah. I I think that we often make the mistake of hiring to solve an unidentified problem. There's too much happening, but we don't actually really know what help we need. And I think particularly services businesses often scale in that way, where if you suddenly hit a, a gold mine and you have more work than you can poke a stick at, then your only option to scale is to just hire a shit ton of people. And that eventually backfires. So what are some strategies that that you have used or that you advise people to use to be more considered in those early stages to avoid those pitfalls? I think I think the the general, particularly first-time founders, will just hire lots of the same people to scale. And that can cause problems in numerous ways. And I think what they're not doing is they're not actually thinking about the people. They're not going to the current people going, you know what, what do you love doing in your job and what do you hate doing in your job? Because maybe we can get you to do more of what you're good at and what you like and less of what you're not good at. And same from a founder's perspective. You know, founders often don't do that. They almost feel they have to burden themselves with the harsher points because they're the founder doesn't make any sense at all. What you need to do is make sure that you're getting the most out of the people in terms of what they're good at, what their skills are, but also where they want to go so that they don't leave. You know, you want to retain these people. So it's not just about, oh, you're so good at that, you're just going to sit there and do more of that forever until we sell this business. No one wants that job ever, right? Apart from maybe the person who warms the chairs because I still think that's a good job. The job that I covet is either that or the person that names all the brands at Aldi. I think that would be really fun. Because, you know, you don't actually have to make anything. You're just like, okay, we're going to sell peas. What will we call them, right? Like, so, but what was I've that, never found um, it advertised. What so. was that? There was, a, there was a TV show where, where they had anagrams, right? And they'd have to guess the words. All of those contestants, I think, work at Aldi because that's all they do, right? They just they just jumble <laughs> up the names of other brands and come up with something that either either is amusing to them or sounds like it could be the same, but it gives you a little bit of a chuckle. <laughs> I kind of imagine it like a magnetic word kit. It's like. Pleasant Hills Peas, you know, like sort of thing. Like, you know, what is that going to be like? <laughs> anyway, we do, we digress. We are yeah, if you can't get those jobs, then people, yeah, you know, they they need growth, and often 
you know, having those conversations from the outset, I think is incredibly important because it's very hard, either whether it's a culture piece or whether it is a longevity of employment piece. If you don't have those convos at the beginning, they're very hard to have later on. Talked a bit before we started recording about the value and importance of branding in that talent acquisition space. Where do you see that being most useful? The thing I've learned with Nudge, so Nudge, obviously, my fourth recruitment business, focused on startups and scale-ups, both bootstrapped and venture-backed and even private equity-backed. Quite a specific market, quite niche. I see more global than my other companies, which were either corporate or government or whatever they were. What I've learned during these five years is that when you go to hire for a startup and no one's heard of them, it's not easy, right? Would you like to leave this perfectly good job where you're quite happy and work for this company that you've (laughs) never heard of that has a relatively high percentage chance of failure. It's not a great sales pitch when you're trying to get people to join companies. So what you have to do is you have to tell their stories, which is essentially employer branding. And, you know, this was the reason we started the Give It a Nudge YouTube show. We did that to tell stories, to, to do that employer branding and be able to cut that media up and, and use that to tell those companies stories. The power that has is mind-blowing and we've taken it to such an extreme now because the data says it works where when we approach people about a job we'll send them i don't know maybe a four five minute clip of the founder if they like the founder we'll then let them watch the whole episode about the company the mission if they like that then and only then will we talk to them about the job if they want to know about the job first and not the founder we won't talk to them and we lose them in the process and that's fine because when you go about hiring in that manner and in that order what you get is you get people who, one, are going to fit into the culture because they like the founder, which is kind of important. Two, they actually do care what the company does. And three, they're much more likely to stay and they're much more likely to have a greater impact. And that's where employer branding becomes so important. If you can't tell your story effectively over a LinkedIn post or an Instagram or a short video or something like that, then you need to learn how to because that's how you're going to attract and retain the most important people because people like to work for companies that other people have heard of. It's that human nature of wanting to belong, right? So if you're doing a great job of your employer branding, people will be proud to work for you and will want to work for you. And I don't think founders, particularly bootstrap founders, understand how important that is. And that's why that's a service that we obviously offer now. I think in bootstrapping in particular, there's a type of founder, they've really got an idea, they've got great experience They don't see themselves as a front of house person, want to kind of do it in the background. And I I think you've hit on something really important that I'm often pushing from the sales side, which is right now as a beginning business, what people are really going to buy is their confidence in you until you have a product that is actually working. So if you're not prepared to put yourself out there, and, and this is just another example that I hadn't really thought of, of where that's also the case. So How do you encourage those people that don't want to be on camera, that don't want to be the face of their their startup to see the value of that? So I think think the really interesting part about a founder who doesn't want to be the face of the business is they don't have to be. And I, and I think they find that uncomfortable as well sometimes. It's, it's, a, it's a really interesting scenario. There's, there's two types of founders. Really. There's ones who love being face and the ones who don't, right? But if you don't love being the face, there's absolutely no reason you have to be the face. But what you do is you do need to find someone who is. Now, that person can be your first employee. It can be literally someone that you hire just for that purpose. And that's not uncommon. 
um, but it needs to be consistent. And you need to be comfortable understanding that if you decide not to do it, you can't just suddenly come in and go, oh, I want to do it now. You, you, you've got to have that consistency. So my advice is go and get comfortable. It's actually not hard. It's it's like everything. Anyone who's ever given a talk on a stage knows the first time it's the worst thing you've ever done ever in your life, particularly in our age group. You know, my kids have done it since they were born, so they're probably far more used to it, but we did not. I hated it. I still find it nerve-wracking, and yet I do it probably three times a week, and I still find myself not feeling great. But once I'm up there, I'm fine. But the camera thing's a lot easier as well than it is going up on stage. And I would just practice and, and have a go at it because I do think that having a founder do that, it has a lot more sincerity. It really gives you the essence of the business. But if you really, really don't want to do it and you like mentally really upsets you, fine. Find someone within your business who is. Find someone within your family who is. Find someone that you know ideally who can stay stick around who is, and that is the problem sometimes with employees, mm. or do it with someone and then gradually take it over. I've seen that work quite well as well. Not so much with a co-founder, but with an early stage employee, and then those persons sort of gradually moves on. But, yeah, I mean, I would say whatever you need to do, find a way to make it you. That, that's very powerful because when the idea has come from a person, until the North Star of it is really clearly known, they are the best person to articulate it. And there are things that you can outsource. There are things that are obviously you need to bring in other skills and smarts to work out the specifics of it. But often I find that when we work with founders where they've launched, they haven't quite got the traction that they wanted, they're revisiting. Often it's trying to claw back to like, what was it that inspired you to do this? That has to come from you. It's not going to come from a marketing firm or a salesperson. And uh, even if you're not the best public speaker, if you're genuine in the way that you communicate and people can resonate with that, then they're going to want to work for you or, or use your product. So, so what, what's an example that you can think of of where you've seen somebody who um, was not, didn't want to be the face who ended up becoming a really good one? Oh, I was going to say me until you put that last bit on, and now I'm just going to have to leave that off. <laughs> you, know, you know what I have seen actually um, work really well, and it, it's becoming a little bit more popular now, is an avatar. So, we, you know, if anyone has got an Apple iPhone or any kind of thing, you can create a little cartoon version of yourself pretty easily, right, that still looks a little bit like you. Um, and then you just can do voiceover. You know, this is particularly great if you're doing, like, camera stuff. Obviously, if you're going up on stage, really want to have to dress up in a big outfit like an avatar, you look ridiculous. But I think if you're doing camera stuff, you can use an avatar and that does work. But trying to think of an example, I mean, I think, to be honest, pretty much anyone you see out there doing anything on camera, I don't, I can't think of anyone I know apart from one who found it easy at the beginning. And that one who did find it easy at the beginning was a stand-up comedian before that. So had gone through a whole crisis of life trying to do that beforehand. So, you know, they'd already gone through the process. I don't think anyone really just wakes up and goes, you know what, I'm going to be great on camera. It's, it's just something you've got to, to, to do and it's a skill you have to learn. And I do believe it's probably right now with the way the world's going and, and the lack of attention people have. If you can't do punchy videos quickly and easily, no one's going to read your texts. So you need, to, no. you need to learn how to do it. It's, it's just one of those skills. Public speaking, I think you can outsource to some degree, but I do think the camera work, you can practice that all night if you want. You know, it, it's not something that is, 
unattainable. I think anyone can do it if they want to do it. I want to kind of think about the candidate experience, both from the employer and the candidate side. We've talked a bit about the kind of candidates that we want to try and avoid. What are the things that you look for when you are hiring that would be the kind of the ideal startup candidate profile? So that's a really difficult, no one's ever asked me that before. And I've been asked a lot of things. Um, I think, I think that it really depends on the founder and the stage of the business. So you've got lots of different types of founders. You have sales founders, you have product founders, you have tech founders, you have marketing founders, right? All very different. You have pre-seed, seed, series A, series B. Again, all very different personalities. So I think the key thing is to find out what the, the personality of that founder is like or yourself if you are that founder. Work out what your personality is like. What does work for you? What are you trying to achieve with that role? And where are you in that funding journey? You know, if you're at really early stage, like we talked about, you're going to need that level of ambiguity and ability to do anything. As you get a little bit more down the down the road, you're going to need people who obviously are better at documentation and starting to build process and, and kind of don't love process and, and governance, but don't love being freeballing like over here. And then when you get up to sort of a series B and C, you need specialists who are very focused deeply in thought about things. So there's no right or wrong candidate. It's just understanding where you are in that journey, where your business is in that journey, because again, you can have a Series A company with 10 people and you can have a Series A company with 50 people and you can have a Series A company, particularly in somewhere like the US or the UK, with 2,000 people. So very, very different kinds of hiring. There's no right or wrong answer. That's the wonders of recruitment. People are all different and all sizes. But I just think you need to have, and this comes back to your very, very first question, a strategy, an understanding and you need to be purposeful about it. Don't just go out and go, we need to get another Joey. Now, there's no worse job description spec than someone goes, you remember that guy Joey hired us last year? Yeah. Can we get another one of him? Obviously not, because Joey's not a twin. So it's a stupid thing to say, but it, that's not a purposeful, you know, what are you trying to achieve? What, you know, do you really need another Joey or do you just like Joey? And it's easy to say that to me. I think people try to outsource recruitment to us which is great don't get me wrong we need that but they kind of want us to do everything it's a bit like a parent that outsources their parenting to the school right this you have to take an element of responsibility for this and if you really want your business to work and how many founders stand up and say people are our most important thing we'd be nowhere without the people and yet their time they invest in it is minimal it might be two to three percent of their actual day or month or year and yet they stand up at the conference and say how amazing everyone is, but they really don't put any effort or time into it. It's a shame. What is that balance of doing it yourself and where you need help? I've definitely worked with in places where recruiting is external. And at the end of the day, it feels like the, the value for the cost is questionable. But then I've also worked in places where the boss does all the hiring and they're <laughs> terrible at it. So, <laughs> Look, I think, again, it, it's down to your budget. Um, I mean... It's, it's down to the the time, I think. There are some roles you can hire without the specialist use of a recruiter if you have the time, like if you're doing what is a relatively straightforward position and it's more of a cultural hire, then you should probably be doing that yourself. But as in you get into looking for more specialist skills and the time can be like completely dehydrating from your day, like you literally can't do anything else because you're so focused on it. Let me give you an example right now. The way the market is right now we're getting 500 people applying for every job. That's ridiculous. And they all want to chat, right? So that's going to take your week out. But then if you go to the other end of the scale, 
and you get two people applying for your job, well, then you're going to be spending hours and hours and hours trying to headhunt. So I think you just have to look at what you're trying to hire. You know, if you're going to hire an admin person, you can probably do that yourself. But would your time be better spent on your product? And I think it's like anything. It's that cost-based analysis. You know, if I'm going to spend five hours hiring this role, how much is it going to cost me? It's going to cost me this fee. Can I make more money in the business by spending five hours doing something else? And then you really have the answer to your question yourself. But at the same time, you know, <laughs> quite often people will outsource it, but then not spend that five hours doing something else. They spend five hours staring out the window, in which case, yeah, well, that's their own fault, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Yeah, but yeah. If you are looking at getting an external partner to help you with that, what are some things that you should be looking for or looking to avoid? I think you need to find a recruitment partner that understands your business. And I don't mean your domain. I mean your business. So, for example, as you know, this is my fourth recruitment business, right? And it's just startups and scale-ups. A lot of the staff that work at Nudge worked in my previous companies. Some of them worked in all of my companies. When they came to Nudge, it took them maybe three to four months to understand how to work with Nudge clients because it was completely different to my previous company where we worked with government to the one previous to that where we worked with corporates, the one previous to that where we worked with digital. So it, it, it's, a, it's a different process. There's a different way of hiring. There's a different understanding of the business. And so if you are a startup, an early stage startup, don't go and work, don't go and pick up an agency that works with corporates. They're not going to understand how to hire for you. And if you're a big sort of private equity-based company, don't go and work with companies that work with startups. If you're a company that only sort of is going to remain small and is a family company, find a recruiter who's worked with family companies, which again is even more different. And a lot of bootstrap companies are family-run. Hiring for family business is completely different hiring for a bootstrap services company hiring for a product business is different to a services so you want to say okay who have you worked with who's like us and you're not looking for the company that sells the same product as you you're looking for the company that has a similar sign of way of behaving culture and so forth and ask for a client reference no one ever asks for client references i always offer them and they go oh no and i'm like why wouldn't you do that that just seems madness to me but that's that's the key thing you know find a recruiter and don't work with a recruiter that works for everybody because then they just don't know how to do anything they just they just they're just taking a very vanilla mm -hmm. cookie cut approach and the yeah, level of service that. you'll get will be will be very low and that's the larger agencies you know it's fine for big companies but if you're a smaller bootstrap company find someone who understands you and will give you what you need and you need a specialist without a, without a as a candidate one thing that i have noticed in the startup space is that there has been this trend towards a really protracted interview process you have vibe checks and you know, meet this team and that team. And where is the balance there? Because I definitely, I'm a big fan of meeting more than once. I don't think you really get a, you get a real feel for person, people in one meeting. I like to kind of meet online, meet up for a coffee, but the bigger the company gets, I've seen people put through hellish uh, processes to then, you know, either get a no or get a crappy offer. Where, where is that balance? What do you advise? Look, I think if you're working with a business who's doing that to you, all that is, an interview process is a window into how that company operates. So if you've got a company that they want to do a vibe check and they want you to meet Cheryl, even though Cheryl will have nothing to do with you, as well as Cheryl's best friend, as well as Cheryl's auntie, as well as the finance person, you know, what that tells you is that, that the way that business works is going to be an absolute nightmare. If you're actually going somewhere where you want to get things done, 
you're not going to like that. Now, if you enjoy that process, then you'll probably enjoy working there. And I think that's a very good way of looking at it. I mean, to me, I think interviews, there should be a generally sort of casualish meet and greet on both sides. There should be a much more in-depth interview where you're doing sort of behavioral situational questionnaires. And then there should be a final interview. I don't mind the idea where sometimes they get someone from a completely different department just to, to do that. I don't find it adds a lot of value. It, they often lose some of their best candidates by doing that. I don't mind it. I don't like it, but I don't mind it. Anything more than four interviews, you just run. Like it's it's just it's it's honestly it's so ridiculous. <laughs> now the only time that can be okay for me is if you've got two candidates they can't decide. So we've been doing quite a lot of um, CEO roles this year, bizarrely, and their interviews are longer. There aren't. I don't think there should necessarily be more than four, but their interviews are a bit longer. But sometimes you get down to two and they really just can't decide. So then then I can understand the process can extend a little bit. But if you're like you're talking about, there's the famous, I think when I was young, it was Price Waterhouse, then it was Atlassian, then it was Google, you know, all these ridiculous interviews. They're just being a bit too cool for school. And I think you just need to decide, like, if you don't like that, don't go work there. If you do like that, you'll probably enjoy working there. I, I'm not really a fan of introducing people to teams that they're going to be working with. I don't think colleagues should be making a call on who gets hired to work alongside them. I think it sets up a weird dynamic from the beginning, but I've been in that situation multiple times as a team member where I'm like, they're all great. Why? I don't want to decide. I'm not, I, it's not my decision. I'll work with whoever. <laughs> no, do you know what else it does? And it, and it, it can really, it can be really damaging because often those people have a superiority complex over that individual and will sometimes throw it in their faces. You know, I can't believe I voted for you to hire, you know, these kinds of things. This is not a good dynamic. This is a bad, bad dynamic. And if someone says that they don't like them and then they get hired, that's even worse because then they feel, one, they haven't been heard and they don't yep. like them and they've already decided they don't like them before they start. It's a disaster. So, I mean, look, people will continue to do idiotic things in all walks of life, not just in recruitment. But I do think that, you can overcomplicate it. I think AI is going to bring some interesting changes into recruitment in terms of matching. I think it's a long, long way off being able to do the process entirely itself, but it's doing some really good things. It's getting better every year. Obviously, it's moving quicker and quicker and quicker. I think everyone wants it to just take the whole process over. Seeing people try that total disaster. AI, is, as, as has been proven, AI is just as prejudiced as everyone else. And I do think that this unconscious bias is a super interesting topic. And if you'd like, I can explain to you why, which is a little controversial. But everyone's talking about if you have an individual who has an unconscious bias, they're going to bring that into their recruitment process, and that's not fair on that individual. I understand that concept, right? So they say, well, we'll just remove all the people and then there'll be no unconscious bias. Okay, well... Fundamentally, it's completely flawed because in terms of hiring and working with people, we need to hire and work with people. Yes, we all have unconscious bias about who we choose to be friends with, who we choose to sit and have lunch with, who, you know, everything bar family, right? So if you remove unconscious bias and you just get the best person for the job, that's great. They may come in and be amazing. But if they can't get on with their teammates because there's no unconscious bias been brought in, guess what? They could be the best of them, but they can't work collaboratively. So they just got lots of individuals who are great, but no team. And we all know a team's more powerful. You need unconscious bias to actually bring together a cohesive team. And if you remove it, 
you're going to build a whole bunch of siloed individuals, which will never work as a team unless you get incredibly lucky and you should probably buy a lottery ticket. But unconscious bias, I actually think, is a fundamentally key and important part of hiring. And I know that's controversial, but it's true. Well, that actually, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, that you know, one thing I wanted to ask was how how deliberate can you be about diversity when you're building a team? Like I'm very conscious of that in in what I do and ensuring that our you know our hiring practices and our opportunities um, reflect that. Um, how deliberate can you be in building a team profile um, that is not just about ticking boxes, but actually still the best people? I think when you're trying to create diversity, that just means stop hiring the same people over and over again. Now, that can be anything, height, race, weight, color, language, anything, right? I think ultimately what you've got to do is you've got to, for me around diversity, I don't think you can choose people going, we need to get someone who ticks that box, so we're going to hire someone who gets that box. I don't think that's a great idea. I think what you need to do is you need to make sure that the candidates you're interviewing tick all of those boxes. So it's not so much we have to hire it, but we have to give everyone across all of those boxes the opportunity, and then we hire the best person who is in that group. It's less about choosing the actual winner of the of the process from a diversity point of view it's more about allowing the diversity into the process that's how i've always seen that and, and that has how it should be ultimately you know there's a whole bunch of i guess reverse diversity problems that you're always going to occur but then of course there is also this problem where there's availability of candidates you know i've had many clients when i was doing corporate wanting to put more women into senior leadership roles which is great i think there's nothing wrong with that i think it's a great idea i think you should definitely do that but you've also got to remember that there's only five candidates for every 25 so the chances are always going to be slightly less just because unfortunately because of the lack of opportunities for them there's a lack of candidates who could actually do those roles as well so it's you can't just go well we need to get a woman and we're going to hire a woman but you can't just go well we need to you know, get someone from a different country because we need to get some, that's, that's just the wrong way. But I think what you need to do is make sure that you are widening your funnel of available people that you look at before you're making a decision. That's, that's the key to me. Okay. Now that that's really helpful because it is something that I'm, I'm highly conscious of in wanting to be open to that, but without, you know, I, I have someone very close to me who was, made an offer for a, a very senior role in a big you know, organization. And the comment was kind of made like, oh, this is great because we really want you and you're a diversity hire. Well, that, I mean, that, that is, um, what do you call that? Um, I forget the term, but it's basically. Um, Bad. So it's, you know, um, casual racism, right? Or, or casual, whatever you want to call it. it it's, it's really unacceptable. It's a joke, supposedly, but it's not a joke. That should, I mean, you should never hear a comment like that ever. Yeah, they didn't take the job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. But, um, yeah, no. I mean, the, the whole casual racism thing has always been, you know, being English, even though I've been here 25 years now, it's always blown me away how, how strong casual racism is here in Australia. Um, but, yeah, very, very much so. It actually shocked me. I mean, that was 25 years ago. It's obviously improved a lot since then, but it's still way behind a lot of other Western countries, I believe. Well, I mean, I come from the US and Australia is so much more multicultural, accepting 
to me than where I came from. So it's hard to kind of compare. I get it. <laughs> you know, I get it, you know, certainly, but it is, um, you know, the, the divide, which is it's institutionalized, you know, really to kind of just keep people at odds to keep the money where it is. And it's really insidious. So, um, and living in Melbourne where, where we live, which is, you know, incredibly, um, multicultural, I, I get that, but I understand, I do understand definitely what you're saying. There's still a lot of super white, um, places in this country, even in Melbourne. There are, I mean, I think it's, it's still a very super white country. I mean, really, when I look, if you walk down the street in London and you walk down the street in Sydney, Melbourne or Brisbane, it's a very different view. Very, very different view. That's interesting. So, so let me ask you that just in, in wrapping up, if you were advising a bootstrapping founder in this space and you could only give them one piece of advice on how to build a talent acquisition strategy, what would it be? I think it would be take the time and be very purposeful about it. Because every single company is so different. You can't, ha- you can't pick one thing out. So I think it's really like take it seriously, be purposeful. Too many people just sort of want to get it done. Don't rush it. Don't rush the process. Be, I will advise a lot of clients. I've got one client, goodness help me, we're at the fifth time we've got to a shortlist. Um, we've had a few offers turned down, but he's like, well, we'll just hire this guy then. Because I said, no, no, you don't just hire that guy. I don't want to, do you think I want to go out and do the whole work again? No, I don't. But I don't want you to hire the wrong person because then you're going to hate me. So it's take the time. If it takes time, it takes time. It's one of those things. You can't rush it. People are too complicated to rush. Yeah. I think we, we want to lock stuff in so that we can tick a box. And one thing that that I do in my business where most of the people working with us right now are freelancing and doing other things is it's like, you know, let's date before we get married. So we've got a piece of work that we need done. We, we seem to really gel and it could be enjoyable to work together. Let's do that one thing and then evaluate after that if we still feel the same. And then, you know, sometimes for circumstances, whether it's, you know, ways of working or you know, their employment circumstances, it doesn't work out, but you're still part, you know, happily. Um, but it's not that kind of same thing as having to fire someone. Actually, I know I said that was the last question, but do you see, <laughs> do you see more people moving to fractional part-time engagements or are people still very focused on full-time bummonts? People, early, early stage founders are very focused on full-time they don't use a lot of contractors it i don't know why there's no sense to it i advise them else other ways to, to use contractors and so forth but they, they don't want to and i think everyone has this glamorized idea of being a founder that you know they'll build it up with the same three people that all started on the couch and then they'll sell it all for a fortune and you know they have this this sort of image in their mind um i think fractional roles work really well in certain things finance and, and very practical things like that they're great um, operational things i think with marketing, it can be tricky. I think you can use fractional freelancers. Absolutely. I think freelancers are great. I think you can do that with technology. Obviously, we also build offshore teams. I think they can be great and obviously significantly cheaper. But there'll come a point where you do want to have those people on full time. And so you just got to make sure you have a real think a thought process around that. And, you know, the other big part of hiring is, Take the onboarding very seriously. It's not just, oh, I've hired the person, great, get him in here and let's get on with it. I don't have to think about that anymore, which is kind of what you said, like ticking the box. The onboarding is just as important. And I mean that for contractors and fractional people as well. 
because they're not going to give you the, the same result. They're not going to be able to learn what it's like because they're not in there every day. So the onboarding of them and getting them to understand your culture, your thought process, how the company works, where you're going, the product, all that kind of stuff is even more important. And you spend even more time doing that with them because you want to get that quality piece of work out with them. And then you can continue working with them for, for years. So, yeah, I think there should be a lot more contract. But I, I think Australia is particularly bad about it. The UK uses a lot of contractors in startup world. Australia does not. Um, neither does Asia. Um, Singapore, they don't, they don't like contractors either. It's quite strange. Mm. And yet we get a lot more contract work out of our UK office. What about like a contract seat warmer? Well, I think that has to be contract, doesn't it? Because, well, I don't know. Otherwise, the chairs would all have the same shape, you know, after time. Listen, how do you how do you interview for that? I wonder. It's like I really to- think that there's a lot of social wrongs. There's a lot of unconscious bias in this role, I feel. You know, do you want coverage or, or do you want depth or what are you looking for? You know? Amazing. Well, look, I don't think we could have covered much more than that. Um, thank you so much. And uh, I think we'll have to have you back to um, unpack that one a bit further. Thanks, Steve. My, my pleasure. Thank you. You can find out more about Steve and The Nudge Group at thenudgegroup.com or on their YouTube channel and Steve's LinkedIn. And that's the bootstrap for this week. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen. And of course, we'd love a positive rating and review to help others find our show. Even better, share the show with a friend or anyone who will listen. Maybe paint the URL on your dog and take them for a couple of extra walks around the block. We won't say no. We now have our own LinkedIn page. Just search the Bootstrap Startups from Scratch. Our YouTube channel is about to launch, and we're working on the rest of our social media presence. But for now, you can find the product bus on most platforms and interact with the Bootstrap post there. We'd love to hear from you. The Bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and the product bus. It was developed by me, Scotty Allen, and Declan McGee. This episode was produced and written by Declan McGee. We were edited by Sammy Perriman, original sound design by Rob Clark. Executive producers are Tiffany Ashdown and me for Highland Road. If you're an early stage founder looking for resources and practical help, check out theproductbus.com and get in touch. Swivel.